For those of you who are visiting, uh, we are in a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John. So I'll ask you to turn there with me, chapter 2, or chapter 3 actually now. John chapter 3, be reading the first 21 verses. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. As we come to chapter 3 of John's Gospel, we need to remember what we saw in 
the latter part of chapter 2 in verses 23 to 25. That is, that not all who profess faith have true faith. Jesus was able to look into the hearts of people and see whether their faith was true or whether it was false. That's something that we are not able to do. All we can do is inspect the fruit of a person's life and try to determine whether there is true faith there or not. And that's not a bad thing because it allows us to have some sense of assurance that someone knows the Lord. Although we cannot truly see the heart, we can certainly see the effects of of salvation that comes out in the life of the individual. Jesus was able to look directly into their hearts. Love for Christ, obedience to the commands of Christ, hatred of sin, departure from the world, the flesh, and the devil are all evidences of true saving faith, along with persevering and suffering for Christ. There are many in our world today Many who live right around us, who we know personally, who take the broad road of easy believism. It is a road that leads to destruction. The cheap grace gospel, which is really not a gospel at all, it has no good news to it, has deceived this generation with its market-driven Ministry, its emotionalism, its subjectivism, and its indiscriminate inclusivism have all invaded the church with devastating consequences. There are people today who have been deceived and believe that they are right with God when they are lost in their sin. It is a sad Sad commentary on the gospel as it stands in the world today. And I speak of not of the true gospel, but of the false gospels that are out there. Jesus was not interested and is not interested in cheap, shallow responses to the gospel. He never was and he, ne- he is not now. This is evidenced by many passages in Scripture, many of which I've given you in the notes we will not turn to. You can look them up at your own leisure. Sad to say, there will be multiple multitudes of people who have professed faith that really didn't have faith at all. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He will find it, but it will be very small compared to the numbers of humanity. Even compared to the numbers of professing Christendom. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 25. I'll ask you to turn there with me so you can follow along a very 
hard passage for many, a very difficult passage to think of in its, in its reality. The disciples wanted to know what it would be like when he returned. Jesus, in chapter 24, tells them of some of the things to look for just prior to the return of Christ. Some of, some of those things are happening before our eyes right now. Some things that I could tell you and will tell you in time that I have seen and found out that uh, really point to the soon return of our Lord and Savior. Jesus writes, beginning in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, now that's His glory at the end of the tribulation, when He comes with ten thousands of His saints, it says, when He comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will then sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right hand but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed by My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Skip down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. A passage of Scripture that speaks of those who did not have true faith, but only had a professing faith. With this in mind, chapter 3 enters the scene, showing the necessity of the new birth as a means for saving faith. Faith is not something, people talk a lot about faith in our time, they have faith in this and faith in that. And, and oh yes, I have faith, faith in God. Some people just simply have faith in faith. Faith is not something, saving faith, the faith that procures salvation that does not need to be repented of, is something that comes from God. It is not innate in fallen humanity. That is, We do not have the capacity nor the ability to have saving faith on our own. Oh yes, you'll hear sometimes people talk about that God-shaped void that everyone has. And all you have to do is just believe and just exercise your faith. Uh, I I got news for, for you. The unbelieving don't have any faith. They can't muster it up. They can't exercise it because it does not exist. Faith is a gift, according to Ephesians 2. 
People do not naturally have this capacity to believe. It is an act of divine sovereignty totally apart from any human effort. Yet there are those who will acknowledge that God exists and that there are supernatural events that have occurred that have no other explanation than God. There are people that will admit that. And yet they don't have any faith in this God that they believe is supernatural. Just ask people sometimes. You believe in God. See what kind of answers you get. You get everything under the sun. Because you see, people were created to believe in God. Some God of some kind. It is something that happens in all of humanity. And even people who say that they don't believe in any God who claim to be atheist are lying to you. Because the God they believe in is themselves. Nicodemus was such a person. He believed in God. He believed in the God of Scripture. He believed in the God of Israel. Yet, like those in verses 23 to 25, whom Jesus knew the hearts of, he did not know the God of heaven in salvation. And so, we find Nicodemus approaching Jesus at night in verse 1 to fact check. This is what he's doing. He's fact checking to use the Modern terminology, he is there to find out who Jesus was and to find out how and why he did the things that he was doing. So first of all, I want us to, this is just going to be a sort of a background sermon this morning puts us in it puts us in a historical context as to who Nicodemus was why he came the way he did and we'll get into the into the other later so let's first see who Nicodemus was and what prompted him to approach Jesus the way he did what 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 he learned when he did approach him and what the aftermath was what what happened as a result of his approaching the Lord. In fact, there are several conversations in the following chapters that show the difference between what we see here as human understanding of salvation and understanding that comes from the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus is just one of those illustrations. The others are found in in uh, verse, chapter 4, verse, verses 1 to 26 with the Samaritan woman. And we see human thinking there, and Jesus has to give her the divine, the divine answers. Then in chapter four again, we see the visit of the the official in from Galilee. Uh, again, human thinking, divine answers. There was then the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, and etc. It goes on and on. And over and over, John gives us these illustrations where Jesus deals with people about 
eternal matters that they cannot understand because they're thinking in human terms until he gives them the ability to think otherwise. We see the sovereignty of God in these things. And over and over they describe the salvation that comes from God in divine terms to thwart and to 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 literally obliterate human understanding of them. That's why the scriptures said that the things of God are foolishness to those that are perishing. But to us who are being saved, they are the power of God. They're not our power. They're the power of God. So now back to Nicodemus. There are five occurrences of Nicodemus' name mentioned in Scripture. And all of them are found here in the Gospel of John. Three of them are found here in chapter 3. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 9 mentions his name. But we also find him mentioned in chapter 7, verse 50, and chapter 19, verse 39. The John 3 passage gives us his dialogue with Jesus. But the other passages indicate what this initial meeting with Jesus may have become in time. Look at chapter 7, if you will, with me quickly. I'm just going to read these. We'll get to them in our exposition as we come to them. Chapter 7, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, that gives us an indication that it's the same Nicodemus of chapter 3, and who was one of them. That gives us indication of faith. Said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Oh, you can hear the hatred in their voices. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So we find Nicodemus there, an indication that that possibly he had been saved. Although, if he is, he's secret. It's a secret. He hasn't let it be known. Then in chapter 19, we get an even further indication. Verse 39. Nicodemus also, same Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrhs and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So it seems as though the wind of the Spirit had blown in Nicodemus' life, in his heart. It happens... That his name was a Greek name. I find that interesting. Because he was indeed a Jew and a leader of the Jews. But it was a popular name in that day. His name means literally conqueror of the people. 
victorious among the people. Interesting meaning. One who has distinction. Well, now that fits him because he was a man of distinction. Based upon what we see in the gospel accounts of Nicodemus, Nicodemus had several strikes against him as far as the gospel message went. First, he was a respected, powerful leader among the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council of 70. In Jesus' day, it was a council of 71 because the prior or former high priest was also a part of the council. If you'll remember, Caiaphas was the high priest and Annas, his father-in-law, had been the high priest before him. And so it was a council of 71. They were the highest legal, legislative, and judicial body among the Jews. If we were to say what they equal in our day, we would have to say they were the Supreme Court of the day. They were like our Supreme Court. There was no higher judicial body than the Sanhedrin. When they made a ruling, that was the end. There was no other place to go. And so they took care of very serious cases among the people, even leveling the death sentence in certain cases. Nicodemus was one of their top leaders and teachers. The term ruler in verse 1, a ruler of the Jews, is the Greek word archon. And it has, it describes one who has eminence or ruling capacity. We would say it's, it's like a judge who sits on the bar and when his gavel comes down, that's the end. He has made his, his judgment, his ruling. I remember, well, it's not quite that way in our day because we have courts and then we have appellate courts and then we have supreme courts and we have federal supreme courts. Uh, and so it goes up the chain. But when the judgment of the Supreme Court of the United States ends, that's it. There's no higher court. Nicodemus was one of these people. And he is, it describes, this word archon describes that eminence that he had. And we see it in these scriptures that I've given you. Acts 4, Acts 7, Romans 13, Titus 1. All speak about these people who are who we would call judges or magistrates. They're there to make rulings on on the basis of law. The second strike against Nicodemus was a strike at his wealth. Tradition has it that Nicodemus was the third richest man in Jerusalem at that time. Now think about that for a moment. Among the Jews, he, he, had, he had more wealth than just about anybody else in Jerusalem. No matter what his station or financial status, he was a sinner dead in trespasses and sins who needed to be born again.
The first thing that John 3 tells us is that he was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews and a Pharisee. Now here's a man who was high on the scale of leadership. He would have been, if, if he were walking in the streets of Jerusalem, people would have recognized who he was and they would have bowed to him as a Pharisee. We cannot understand the gravity and the weight of the, of the fear that these people placed over the people of, of the, or the Jews of that day. They were, they would have been afraid of him. For he had the power to do things to them and they had no recourse. The Apostle Paul speaks of such people in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is what he says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble, of noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in his presence. Nicodemus would have been considered all of these things. He would have been considered wise and powerful and strong and respected and more. The only other man that could have boasted such a pedigree of accomplishments was Saul of Tarsus. And he does boast that in Philippians chapter 3. And then very quickly Paul Throws it all away to have Christ. He placed no confidence in his human pedigree. Why? Because God will have no boasting in his presence. There'll be no boasting. We won't be able to say, but I, but I, you look at me. Uh, there'll be none of that. None. The Pharisees were one of the strictest sects that made up a group in Jerusalem. They were, of course, within the Sanhedrin. They were, they were self-righteous legalists who felt threatened by the works that Jesus was doing. In fact, at one point, they made the statement that if he continues on doing the things he's doing, everyone will believe in him and he will displace us and take away our power and our place. The title itself, Pharisee, means to separate or be a separated one. One has, that has a different manner of life. Than other people. Now, when the Jews resettled in Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, there were two religious groups that came out in Judaism as a result of that. There was one that was called the the Zadikim, and the other 
They were, that was a religious group. The other was a pious group called the Hasidim. It was from this Hasidim group that the Pharisees came. Originally, they were middle-class businessmen rather than priests or Levites that made up the Pharisaical group. As a result, they had a very strong influence upon the common people because they knew the common people. But over the years, this group became hard and dictatorial, leveling upon the people things that they could not possibly keep, rules and regulations by the thousands. The main focus was on this keeping of rules, which they added to the law of Moses. They centered on external appearances rather than inner condition of the heart. Jesus rebuked them for their self-righteousness and their additions to the law. And there are no less than, now get this, no less than 77 references in the New Testament as to the Pharisees. Here are a few of their significant Significant things about them. I, I didn't list all that. All you have to do is look up Pharisees in the New Testament. You'll get every reference of it. But I chose one because it really speaks to what they were like. And this comes from the Lord himself. Matthew 23, if you'll turn with me. Matthew 23, notice beginning at verse 1. All this whole, this whole section, verse 1 through 39, is where Jesus, Jesus speaks against the Pharisees and pronounces woes upon them, calls them hypocrites. Probably this is the most significant text regarding the Pharisees found in the New Testament. Beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, Sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works that they do. In other words, their, their judgments based on law, you have to, you have to do. But don't follow their works. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love to stand. They love the place of honor at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Oh, what a commentary. He called it out just like he saw it. Seven times he calls them hypocrites. He speaks of them as the children of hell who shut people out of the kingdom. He calls them blind guides who corral people 
corral their emotions and their actions to to the Pharisees' own standards. He addresses their greed and passion for money at the expense of the people and their inner filth as though they were full of dead, the dead stench of dead men's bones. He accused them of the hatred of the gospel and the murder of those who preach righteousness and peace. And he warned them that their sentence would be hell. And so he was right. He even tells them, and we get to it and see it in chapter 10, you are not of my sheep. You will die in your sins. The sad thing is, there's still people just like this here among us today. People who are pharisaical in their thinking, their attitudes, their rules. Now, biblical standards are biblical standards. But not everything that we see and enjoy in this life is sinful, folks. God has given us everything to freely enjoy. And he has told us where his boundaries are. And so, if we enjoy the things that God has given us and just follow his way and don't go across the boundaries that he has set for our good, then we are a far happier people and far more fulfilled in our walk with Christ. Unfortunately, Pharisees live in places all over the world who seek to conform people to their selfish standards while regarding biblical standards or calling biblical standards their standards. Or I should say it the other way around. Their standards, biblical standards. I know what I'm talking about here. I grew up as a Christian in this in my early years, both Mary and I together. We were in some of the most legalistic churches you can imagine. Rule after rule after rule. And if you didn't follow the rules, you were looked down on. You were despised. You were talked about. What joy, what freedom is there in Christ in that? There is none. That's why I love this place. People come here... You don't, you don't keep rules, people's rules. You don't keep my rules. You don't keep the rules of the elders. You just come here, you, you do what God says, you love Christ, and you worship Christ, and you follow Christ, and that's, there's happiness and joy in that. Legalism is a prison. It's the sentence of the death of joy. This was the Pharisees. Sad thing is that many weak believers who are sucked into this Phariseeism of our day don't know the difference and they spend their life under the domination of that tyranny. Many of them. I know people right today who are still there. Still preaching the rules. Still trying to keep the rules. Still having no joy. Such was the man Nicodemus. And yet he came to meet with Jesus. Isn't it strange? 
Why would a man such as Nicodemus want to talk to Jesus? Well, possibly he'd heard what Jesus was doing. But the thing for us to remember is that his meeting with Jesus was not an accident. It was a sovereignly divine, designed appointment. Verse 2. I think I can finish this in the next five minutes. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Nicodemus was, as we said, a member of the Sanhedrin, and it was likely that he came to Jesus by night because he did not want anyone to know where he was going. The cover of darkness would have been a shield for him. I'm sure there was some sense of fear and trepidation in Nicodemus' heart as he went to meet with Jesus. It's very possible that he didn't want to implicate the entire council in this meeting. And so he came alone. And it's obvious that they did not know because of the statement made in chapter 7. He did not want to incur their disapproval. And I think that the main, the majority of commentators believe that this was the reason he came by night. There are other reasons given, uh, which I won't go into. Obviously, Jesus would have been a main point of discussion among the Pharisees at this time because of the things that he was doing. The, cl- the cleansing of the temple would have certainly started all of that. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. But like those of of verse 23 and 25 of chapter 2, Nicodemus was impressed with Jesus' ability to do the miraculous. How many times over and over in Scripture do we see people coming simply because they wanted to see some miracle? Even up to the very end of Jesus' life, when he was... When he was sent off to Herod, all Herod wanted was to see some miracle. Just do a miracle. Can I say to you that people are still enamored with the possibility of seeing the miraculous? Or the mystical? Or the unknown? And I'm going to speak to that. Before I'm finished. Maybe he wondered in his heart. Could this possibly be the Messiah? We're not told. We're not even told really why he came by night. It's all conjecture. But I want you to notice the words we know. Who's he referring to? It's plural. We know. Was that the whole council he's talking about? The Sanhedrin? Hmm, I think not. Because we see more evidence of their disdain and hatred of Jesus than we do their admiration for his works. In fact, there were times when they relegated the works of Christ to the power of Satan. 
which is blasphemy, according to Matthew chapter 12. Another thought here is that the miracles that Jesus performed were not like any other miracles by miracle workers of the day. They were actual miracles. Real miracles. Can I say that the same is true today? I think we're probably talking about the we know as a select few among the Sanhedrin. Very select. What kind of knowledge did they have? They knew he was a teacher that had come from God. How? Because of the signs that he did. And they even say, we know that you're come from God and that God is with you. Now get that statement. That's important. With you. Nicodemus was convinced that Jesus must be very close to God in order to do these things that he was doing. But there is a great difference between believing that Jesus is close to God and believing that Jesus is God. Many believe that he was a great man. Many believe he was a great prophet. Even the even the even Islam believes that Jesus was a great prophet. They don't believe he was God. I'll say to you that no one, hear me carefully, no one can be saved. No one can be forgiven of their sins unless they believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. And I'll end with John, 1 John chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2 and Second John 7. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit, every person that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That is, that He was God in the flesh. Second John 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. We are going to see in this passage the necessity of the new birth as central to the salvation of the souls of men and women and boys and girls. And it all starts with a man named Nicodemus. Now let me speak to something that I I just want to briefly warn you about. Because it's it's my job as an elder... To keep you informed as to possible, possibly things that can or could harm you spiritually. <clears throat> I received a text this past week that there was a meeting that was going to be held by uh, an individual. I don't know the name. I, I, 
I, it was given to me, but I can't remember it. And this individual was uh, gathering people to talk about dreams that they'd been having. And it was said that they were prophetic dreams. Hear me carefully. There is no dream, no voice. There is no letter. There is no work. That one can say is from God outside of the Holy Scriptures. Luther said, if you want to hear God's voice, go to the Holy Scriptures. Anything that comes extra biblical. Somebody says, I had a vision. Like Oral Roberts, who said he had a vision and saw a 70-foot Jesus. I had a vision. I saw this angel came and he told me this. I dreamed this dream and, and I believe it's going to come to pass. We're living in that day because the signs of the end are more prevalent to us now. And people are talking about prophetic events. And someone may say, okay, so what about the passage that says your your old men will dream your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions? What about that? That has nothing to do with our time. Those things will happen in the kingdom because it says God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. All flesh. That happens in the kingdom. And I don't know what those visions and dreams are. I don't know what they're exactly for. We're not told. I'm just here to tell you that there will come people who say they've seen or heard or dreamed things that was from God. Don't believe it. If you want to know what God says, go here. This is the only way God speaks. In former times, he spoke through his prophets. But now, speaks through his son. So I want to give you that warning. And you take it and keep it because it will protect you. Alright? Amen. Alright. On that serious note, let me uh, give you a couple of prayer requests uh, for Steve to remember as he comes. I want to give you an update on our son. He had, he had the...